same problems. And we are grateful that we have, um, we need, we are starting a new series. Some may be relieved. Some may be, oh, you know, I was really just getting into First Samuel, but um, First Corinthians. But here we are in a new series. And again, as um, elders, we have taken the time to um, figure out what do we want to share with the church this year, and um, what you know. We don't pick books out of a hat, so to speak. We we are trying to discern the needs of our people, God's people. And uh, we are trying to make sure that we are given a word in season. And so this is why we've arrived at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah at the beginning of this year. So <clears throat> for those of you who are involved in the, um, the week of prayer, you've already hopefully gone through the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah um, comes immediately after, dealing with the same events, but obviously a little bit further along in time. And that's where we are. And obviously, some of us may already see some of the obvious links of how this relates to us now. But as I dig a little bit deeper, hopefully, we will see a little bit more about how um, beneath the economic and the political issues, there is what I would say the real issue, the real spiritual issue. Uh, we haven't got an exact title for the series at the moment. I will put out there. Um, the unchanging God in unchanging times. So um, I will work with that, with the unchanging God in changing times, sorry. Um, and beginning at Nehemiah 1, um, I want to title this sermon, uh, Rome Was Not Built in a Day. In terms of how I'm going to deal with, how I'm going to deal with this as a text, um, I want to take a long run up just so that we can kind of get up to speed as to what the book I hope will give us and inform us about. So I want to take a little time to run up. I want to spend a, a short amount of time dealing with the text itself because we want this to be a short series. Um, and in that sense, we, it's not going to be kind of that line upon line style of teaching, which we obviously are, are accustomed to, but we want to kind of pick the highlights. So we won't be able to go through the whole book as we would like to. Obviously, there's, there's some repetitive things with lists of names and all the rest of it, which in and of itself can be helpful, uh, but we do not have the time to deal with this. We want to kind of basically follow the narrative of Nehemiah and allow that to instruct us and inform us about how we are going to deal with um, our own present-day situations. And so if you can bear with us as we do this, you will find that our, our short hop through Nehemiah right up until Easter will be an incredibly helpful time with you. We, we believe this as elders, that you will, you will be enriched. So let me pray before I go into the introduction and um, give you guys... Um, the word of the Lord. So Father, we are so thankful this morning that we are being able to gather um, where we are, you know, as it be maybe the comfort of our own homes, Lord, wherever we may be, maybe we're driving around, maybe we are um, engaged in some other activities there, Lord God, maybe we're at work, wherever we may be, Lord, I pray that, Lord, your word will go forth and that, Lord Father, you will set a precedent for us, dear Lord God, even as we are at the beginning of this year, that, Lord, even if we are in a new year and we've got the same problems, that it doesn't necessarily have to be the same old me in them. Give us the opportunity, dear Lord Father, to renew our hearts, to change our hearts, Lord, and be able to kind of be brought along with your word. Father, you know, we know you speak to us. We know you are speaking right now. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that your text will breathe, dear Lord God. The breath, the living word of God, the breath of God into our hearts today. If they be hearts of stone, Lord God, may they become hearts of flesh. For those who've never known you, dear Lord God. For those of us who are resisting, who, are, who have a Jonah-like mentality, Lord God, of, of resisting your will. Lord God, bring us around. Lord, for those of us who have a willing heart, dear Lord God, but a 
again, are struggling to see the results as we continue to go through these things, dear Lord God, and trying to get your will done, Lord. I pray that you, you will encourage us. You know, like Aaron and her, coming and holding up the prophet's hands. Stand with us, dear Lord God. Let us be encouraged for those, dear Lord God, who are, who are faithfully serving. Wherever we may be in life, Lord God, we pray that you will help us and meet our needs. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so like I said, it's, um, I want to take a little run up into the text because obviously some of the stuff we've already been learning in Ezra, I just want to kind of solidify it so that it sets us up nicely for Nehemiah. You know, so I want to start by making this statement. A glorious, as glorious as an idea of restoration can seem at the outset, it is usually a long and difficult road in order to get to the place in which it will all be worthwhile. It will all be worthwhile. So in that sense, when we're at the beginning of the year, those plans to get slimmer, those plans to set up that new business, those plans to um, get that project, whether it be some DIY project around the home, it can seem so glorious because your vision, you're, 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 you're able to see quite clearly what you want to accomplish. And it's glorious. Nothing has happened. Everything is, is, is as it was. You know, your body is pretty much there with all the, you know, Christmas dinner fat all hung around it or that that space where you want to build that new cupboard is still basically a, 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 a pile of bags and boards and whatnot. But you can see it and you, and, and you feel excited. And so you ought to be because, in a sense, you're feeling that, that, that I guess you might say, faith of this will come to be. But between that idea and that point of realization, there is a long and difficult road which I believe Ezra and Nehemiah represent. That long and difficult road where that as glorious as, as you saw Cyrus's decree go out, who knows how long these people were waiting to hear this news, how many people were sitting waiting that Jeremiah's prophecy will come true, that after 70 years we will return. And no doubt everybody was glorious as they were probably going back home, traveling, on that long road back to Jerusalem, how glorious they must have felt. But then you kind of flick forward a few months later and a year later and you're there in the midst of ruins, looking at the devastated city that was once your ancestors' home. It can be a vision killer. That long and hard road to seeing the realization of your dream. The history of Ezra and Nehemiah is that they were once one book. It's only in recent, I guess, medieval times that scrolls have been found, which obviously have them separated, which, but in the long history of the Jews, the book was one book, and it's never presented as two separate books, even though <coughs> you see represented there three separate rulers, as it were, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So what was the context? Well, as I said, it was the returning Jews who were captured in the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar by the Babylonians, and the exiles were returning home, particularly to prioritize the rebuilding of the temple, even before rebuilding homes or the wall of the city. You know, in ancient times, cities had to have walls, you know, because obviously the, the, the nature of um, the way tribes and all of it were is that if you didn't have a wall to protect your people, you could leave them exposed to enemy attacks. And so a wall was incredibly important. We don't obviously see walls around the borough of Lewisham. And we don't see, obviously, walls around many kingdoms, if any, today. Because in a sense, we have a, a, a degree of security. But in those days, to not have a wall 
was to not have a border. And this whole idea of prioritizing the temple before even building our homes or building a wall seems, as it were, contrary to human needs. When I even think about it, I couldn't help thinking about even Maslow's triangle of the hierarchy of needs. The physiological, safety, love, belonging, esteem, self-actualization. This is, those, is that, that table which, for those of you who've spent any time in college, would have come across at some point, which is what we see how we are structured towards. But actually, when you come to the word of God, this order is reversed. And it's surprisingly so. And, and again, my reasoning behind why this is so is, to some extent, Maslow sees us, and obviously those in that field of psychology and sociology and all the rest of it, sees us as primarily animals, creatures, which we are. But it sees us in our creaturely sense first. But it's the image of God which God wants us to prioritize in us. And in a sense, our creatureliness comes into line with that image of God. Whereas obviously with this reversed order, it's that our creatureliness is established and then we build our own version of what we want to be as a God. We have some scriptures that help us um, understand this reverse order because, again, it's, it's clearly throughout Scripture, but even more so throughout the Gospels. And so when Jesus is saying it, we know that these things are true. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus had prioritized the Gospel so much so that he didn't even have anywhere to sleep most times. And he was making his, those so-called disciples who wanted to join with him, that his priority was not their comfort. That's in Luke 9, 58. We go on to Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, that's that reverse order. It's like God acknowledges our creatureliness. He just says, seek God first, and I will provide your creaturely needs. Mark 8, 35 to 36. For whoever shall save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For does it, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Again, if you get to that point where you hoard all the food in the world, you hoard all the treasures in the world, you've got everything that, that at, the bottom, at, the, at, the, at the bottom rung of that triangle, you've got every, all of that, but you've not reached that point where you've realized you are a man made in the image of God and ought to submit yourself to that image you are made in, then you've, your life is a waste. And then Proverbs 1, 7a. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In that sense, self-actualization, that very tip of that triangle, that self-actualization begins literally by acknowledging who God is and then now you're ready. You're now ready to go and live and to gather as God allows you to. When I say these things, it's not to say that we, we don't provide our creature needs. Obviously, we, we see that as a, this is an issue of where do I put my priorities? So don't read into there anything more than this is about God ordering our lives so that we can do those things. And hence, one of the reasons why we've started the year with a time of prayer and fasting, isn't it? Is that allowing God to have that priority? We're not saying that you're not going to eat for the, rest of the, for the rest of your life. It's just saying, Lord, just come in and, and come alongside me 
as I, as I try to prioritize. So bless the Lord for those who are able to do so. You know, this should not surprise us that the temple takes priority as it's the first and last in structure that Israel builds whilst traveling to Canaan. Before they enter the safety of the promised land. So this is not something new to Ezra. Even when you go back to the times of Moses, before there was any homes or any, they were anywhere near the promised land, they built the temple. So this whole idea of the priority of the temple is something that we see in scripture. So rebuilding the temple before you go into that place where you're going to build your lives all the rest of it is again right there in the heart of scripture. And that's exactly what Moses does. And again, I want to quote from um, one of the commentaries I've been using, Brenneman, and he makes this comment. The religious or worship experience of the people is also central in Ezra and Nehemiah. When the first group of exiles returned from Babylon, the first, they first built an altar to sacrifice to God. Only afterwards did they build the temple. Still later, they built the walls. The priority is correct. Worship and a correct relation to God must be at the center of our personal lives and the believing community. <clears throat> Hopefully we can appreciate the difficulty or impossibility of centralizing something that has not come prior to other commitments. You know, you can't, as it were, add God later, so to speak, and then make that central. In that sense, that if God doesn't is not a, given some form of priority in your life, you you will hardly centralize it, yourself, your whole life on Him. So, in that sense, we are even as we are holding all of the you know our relationship with God parallel to other important commitments. It's allowing God to have that priority in areas of our lives, at, times, at certain times of our lives, that will help us to centralize on him. And hopefully that's what we've done throughout this week, or last week. It's worth noting here that the Feast of Booths as well, so if you've gone through the book of, of, of Ezra, you start to see the importance of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacle. It grows in significance from this period by becoming the leading festival, even surpassing Passover. The rising significance of the Feast of um, Booze or Tabernacles is that of direct experience. In that sense, where, where the Passover was unique to the experience of those who were coming out of Egypt, they saw the Passover lived. They lived it out. God rescuing them. And obviously, subsequent generations probably came less so, but this Feast of Fet Tabernacles became so significant right up to the time of Jesus. Because in a sense, the time that they were spending living in the city, in ruins, in tents, grew and developed. The, 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 they could identify that the Feast of Tabernacles represented God's provision and safety for the, for the Israelites whilst traveling through the wilderness, in tents. And so what you would find that in the times of Jesus, that people would come and they would come out of their houses and those who have traveled to Jerusalem will build tents and live in them. To remind them of how their, their, their ancestors lived in tents as well. They acted it all out. They relived those experiences. And so it's no wonder that this festival connected with them. And it's important to note that this was an important festival. And, and, it, and it reflected the provision of God. Even though we haven't got walls, just like when we were in the wilderness, God is protecting us. And we see this very clearly, <coughs> this increased significance within John 7. In the Gospel of John, Jesus shows that he is at the center of the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the light of the world. He is the provision. He is God fulfilling this festival to them. And to some extent, it connects us to what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah because Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. This is God with you. 
Emmanuel. So I can't proceed further into our text today, Nehemiah 1. Again, I told you it's going to be a long introduction, but it was helpful. The kings of Persia. I love the history of this period. And again, it's, it's a minefield because there's so much information on it. But again, let me just kind of go through the highlights. So the fate of Judah seemed to hang on the varying personalities of the kings of Persia. So as you're going through the text, you find that different kings make different decisions about what Israel should do. And that's important because different kings had different agendas. And as you understand the history, you'll see why certain decisions were made. But what is important here is as we endeavor to comprehend the Bible, the Bible's theological view of history is important to bear in mind that God can work within the egos of the powers that be, whether that be a Cyrus or an Augustus Caesar, or work contrary to their egos, like Nebuchadnezzar. Let me unpack that. It's not because somebody wakes up and says, the God of heaven has revealed this to me, so therefore I'm going to do this. That's not what the kings, that's not what Cyrus was doing. That's not what was Augustus was doing. When Augustus decreed the census to go out, he did it not because God told him to do so, but because he felt in his heart he needed to do it. And the same thing with Cyrus. Cyrus had this particular belief that unless all the gods that, that Babylon had taken went back to their various temples, that he would not be honored as a good king. And Murdoch will not make him a, a mighty leader. So therefore, he sent all these, these, these people back to their homelands to rebuild their temples because he believed that the gods were angry with them. Like he was angry with Nabonidus, the last king of, of, the last king of Babylon. <laughs> so he can work with their egos. But then again, he can work against their egos, like with Nebuchadnezzar, where he humbles him and shows him who he is. And so then Nebuchadnezzar declares that, now I know that there is a Lord under heaven, and he is the king of the, of the, of the Jews. He, he proclaims that this is God, and that he is in the hands of God. So within the biblical worldview, and we see obviously similar things with Darius as well, a king of Persia, where he works contrary to his ego, and he, he shows something of Darius of who he is. And Darius makes his own confessions of who God is because of Daniel. So in the, within the biblical worldview, there is no place for coincidence. So moving on, how do you go back to a place which you haven't been to in a long while or ever been to and pick up the pieces and start again. No doubt we may look at the current state of the world, our world right now, and see how relevant this may be. But I want to encourage us to look much deeper than the superficial similarities. As we look at the situation that Ezra and Nehemiah are in, it is more, it was not the economic or the political problems that they saw as their biggest obstacles. As big as those problems were. The people's faith in God was their biggest challenge. They needed to know that their God was able to protect them even without a wall. And that the decree of God stood over and against the decrees of the king or kings of Persia. Big problems are trivialized in the face of an even greater solution. How big your God is will no doubt correlate or coincide or relate to how big your faith is. Your God has to be bigger than these, these, these titanic kings. We need to recognize that the building of a nation in which you want to keep its people humble is also a considerable undertaking. Victories given too easily could be seen as earned privileges. 
But on the other hand, too long a period in hardship will weary the people and will see many of them die. So again, that whole idea, that balancing, that God wants to give us no more than you can bear, but he wants us to trust him. So difficult times have to come in order for our faith to grow. We can't have faith if we hope for nothing beyond which we can see. Hopefully we are gravi- we have developed a big vision of what we want to see God do through us. But we realize that, like I said, that long, hard road that we're going to have to go through in order to get to that place because, again, what might seem easy right now and seem glorious right now needs to go through the mill. And so God will test that work to see and show you how you've accomplished, how you've moved forward. But we have a, a, a great message of hope. I want to quote from Zechariah here, 4, 8 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. No doubt we've probably heard that, you know, do not despise the day of small things a number of times. But there's that context. It's, it's to, I'm saying this to you now at the outset who have big dreams for 2021 and beyond. Do not despise the days of small beginnings. That long, hard road to, to see in success. Because the Lord will see you through it. From the outset, the Lord had made it clear to Zerubbabel, the first, one of the first leaders, to return, that the small things will become opportunities to rejoice. How God raises up a David in comparison to a Saul is a great example of how the long, hard road creates better results in the long term. You know, Saul had a quick succession to, to, to being the king. David had a long one, some 10-odd years before he actually became king after he was anointed. You know, you kind of look, if you look back at 1 Samuel, as we, we are going through at the moment, we haven't reached there yet. But if, when David was called in 1 Samuel 16 to go, or 15, to go up to, to King Saul, and he became king then, and Saul just said, you know what, David, you know what, you be the king. I see God is with you. You go ahead. Again, that would have, to some extent, we get the impression would have damaged David's kingship. That long, hard road in which he had to, fight and go through that difficult periods of being um, established as Israel's next king, made him the man that he was. Even as, even as flawed as he was, yet he had the epitaph of here is a man, here is a king after God's own heart. And he became the measuring stick of all other kings to the point where there's only other one king that beats him. And that is his son or his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> who himself, as we know, had a long, hard road in his own kingship and establishing of his kingship on earth. Let me go to our text. So please turn with me to Nehemiah 1. Like I said, I only want to deal with the highlights. So don't be worried about the time. I'm reading from the ESV. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month for Shizlev. In the 20th year as I was, in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and the steadfast love with which those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
we acted very corruptly against you, that you commanded your servant Moses, that, uh, that, you have kept, that we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, that, of, the, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. <coughs> they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So this is the word of the Lord. So what's the time period? Well, the time is approximately 445 to 440 BC. So some, some 90 years have, some 90 to 100 years have passed since the first exiles have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild. But now the temple, but now the temple was actually built, and it was built from the time of 516 BC. Due to some very, you know, but due to some varying decrees of the kings of Persia, the work of rebuilding the city was in a stop, a start-stop cycle. So obviously, um, about three kings have sat on the throne since then. Obviously, since Cyrus, there was um, Darius, there was Cambyses, um, and then now there was Artaxerxes. So I mean, four kings have have passed through the throne, and obviously some political turmoil has happened as that those thrones have succeeded by other things. And so in that sense, as we know within various governments and even governments now, that certain policies of the previous government gets thrown out by the new government. And that's what Israel had to live with, with the turmoil of religious upheaval and political upheaval, so to speak. But I want to pick up on a few things that I think are important about this, this is again my brief overview of where we are at right now with Nehemiah. He says this thing which I find was interesting, the Jews who escaped. Now, I, 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 when, I, when I kind of focus on that, I, I think, wow, that's interesting, the Jews who escaped. I mean, this is a strange expression to give the returnees considering the severe hardships they were enduring in comparison to those who remained in Persia and Babylon. Many Jews never went back with the exiles. They had good lives. They had good businesses. Go back to where? Go back and rebuild what? I'm good. So many people didn't return. But he saw these people as the ones who escaped the trappings of being in a big empire. They were living well. But he sees these people as being those who escaped. So I find that interesting. It does, however, speak, I believe, to the mind of Nehemiah and the high view he had of those who returned. In contrast to even himself being in a privileged position in Persia. He saw these people as the ones who escaped. And he saw himself as someone who hadn't escaped. So just picking up on that phrase alone speaks a lot about what's going on in Nehemiah's heart as this text unfolds and why this changes the whole course of what we see. Those who have survived... That's another interesting term. Those who have survived the exile. In other words, he acknowledges the fact that the difficulty of traveling, especially in the ancient world, and those living in, obviously, in, in, without walls and without tents, that these guys were also survivors. So he acknowledges the humble situation that they're also in. 
I want to pick up on the next phrase that I think is important about, you know, just kind of looking at the highlights of chapter one. It says, the remnant is in great trouble and shame. Now, why is this important? I think, well, much like Moses' own arguments with God, if you remember reading through Exodus, reading through, um, in particular, Numbers, and you know, there was these points where, G- where Moses would argue with God for the safety of the people. And not for the people in and of themselves, but because of who and what the people represented in the face of the whole world to everyone else. He says, Lord, these people who you've called by your name, if you let them perish in the wilderness, your name will be dishonored. And people will say that you could not save them. And this is Moses' way of saying, Lord, I am, I am jealous for your name. To the point where, Lord, as much as these people may seem unworthy, you've committed yourself to them and your honor is at line. And so therefore, Lord, do not do this thing. So it's not so much our own needs that Nehemiah and Moses is highlighting. It's like saying, Lord, the shame that you see that your people carry will carry to you. So from a simple conversation with what um, some commentators believe was his actual brother, his actual brother who had returned back from, um, from Jerusalem and was now back in um, Persia and relaying these effects as through this, but through this casual conversation that Nehemiah has, it turns his heart to prayer, but even more so to action. Prayer and action. I've underlined the word action and action in my notes. There is a possibility that the events of Ezra 4 are in the background here where um, King, um, the king Artaxerxes has ultimately stopped the work. Well, the king at the time, I'm not sure if it was Artaxerxes actually, has stopped the work. So there's a potential hot situation here. If a king has already decreed that this work should stop, who am I as a, well, I'm, I'm in the king's presence, but who am I to tell the king what to do? And so in many ways, what's behind this prayer is the fact that Ezra himself is motivating himself to approach the king. And we only find that out in the very last verse as to how we can do that In the very last verse, in chapter, in verse 11. Because he's the king's cupbearer. He's the king's butler. When we see cupbearer there, we got to see butler. He was taking care of the things that came to the king. People were preparing. He will now come and he will serve the king. Highly privileged position. Unfettered access to the king of Persia. However, even though this was a hot situation, however, much like Esther, Nehemiah sees himself as being in the best position to address the needs of his people. I believe that this is genuinely true of all God's people, that they make the need known, that who he makes the need known to, to be involved practically and to tend to it. In other words, the fact that Nehemiah had this report and had this access, that was God setting him up into a position of action. Nehemiah could have made the request and then delegated someone else to complete it, but that doesn't happen. Note also that in prayer, Nehemiah Nehemiah responds via the words given to Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy. 
There is no tone of entitlement in Nehemiah. We need to pray in line with God's word as Nehemiah does here. Again, this is one of the reasons why my word and my encouragement for you was, again, Romans 12, verse 2. That we will know the word of God, that we'll be able to pray in line with God's word. We'll be able to know the good and perfect will. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does here. He prays the will of God. He says, Lord, I see what your grand vision is for Israel as being your people. And even though we're unworthy, even though we have done these things, I know that your ultimate purpose is that we would glorify you. And so therefore, Lord, give us an opportunity to do so. He prays God's word. Do you pray God's word? Are you so enriched in the scriptures that you just flow in line with the whole theme of the Bible? Is that where you're at? He knew God's, he knew God's perfect will for Israel. And he was going to set them up in order to be able to by God's grace to accomplish that. My final note on this is that the task of approaching the king is a considerably dangerous one, as I've already mentioned. If we're unfamiliar with the concept of ancient kings, we need to understand that these were absolute monarchs. They're not constitutional monarchs like our current European kings. These people had absolute control. They're not even like communist leaders or dictators because you still have the Politburo behind you, you know, waiting to stab you in the back in case you, you, you make a wrong step or you become unpopular. Um, absolute monarchs ruled absolutely by the power of their gods. They had no one to answer to. They would disappear into the temple probably once a year and, and you know, they, they'll come out and say, the gods are happy with me and so therefore make sure you listen to me. And so he had to appeal to this ego of this king. And so that's the reason why he says, give me something in the presence of this man. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he actually says in that verse there, that kind of going back, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, in the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to you, your servant today and grant him mercies in the sight of of this man. Ezra, no, Nehemiah doesn't call him a king. Though he is a king, he says this man. Because when you're praying to the king of kings, all men are men. All men are men. And so when he's praying, he can pray, Lord, this man. Let's move to application as we wind up. So how do we move with the flow of this text? Firstly, there is a challenge to us about how will, how, about what will make us engage with the promises of God. Are you looking to attach yourself to something that is already prospering? Nehemiah was willing to give up a good living in order to join with the covenant people in their difficulties. By wanting to confront the king about this issue, he was willing to put himself in danger even before he reached Jerusalem. So it's not like Jerusalem was a dangerous situation before, but even before he went, he was going to put himself in a dangerous position by making his request known to the king. Are we willing to put ourselves into hardship in order to see the promises of God fulfilled. No doubt Jesus lived this in a way that none of us can comprehend. Coming from glory, coming down into this earth. Yet this should motivate us not to live in a way that puts us out of step with the master and the teacher. Do we prefer tasks within our comfort zone? Like I said, you know, Nehemiah could have delegated somebody. I tell you what, yeah, you go. 
um, da, 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 you do this, you do that, and um, you know, give me a report. So he doesn't do that. He gets personally involved. <coughs> Secondly, are you prepared to pray for God's people and yourself? Are you able to discern God's good and proper will? Again, there's that um, Romans 12 too, isn't it? By virtue of knowing his word and applying it to current circumstances. Nehemiah knew the covenant and proclaimed it both, both in humility and confidence. Notice he does it in both humility and confidence. Humbly, Lord, we've all sinned and, you know, we don't really deserve anything, but ultimately... I'm just highlighting you and pointing you to the grace in your own covenant to us. There's a confidence, Lord. Your grace to us being your people. So there's that confidence and that humility coupled together. The confidence that the God who speaks and has spoken to us in grace will be able to fulfill this even as I come humbly to him knowing that I'm a beggar. Can we do that? Play humbly and pray confidently in God's word and God's promises and God's grace for his people. Even for outreaches like barley loaves will flourish. Lord, we know you want to feed these people. You want to meet these people's needs. Other such needs of having people who will do the work here and Get it fulfilled. Can we pray that humbly and confidently in our God? Lastly, in a world in which powers have failed to keep, you know, the powers that be have failed to keep their promises to assist the work of rebuilding. Like I said, in the backdrop, there are different kings and different coming coming in with different egos, who have different agendas which stop the work. So even in the midst of all of that, and again, we probably see the similarities of the stop-start nature of governments and them trying to get their policies forward and all the rest of it. We live in those times too, right? You know, the work was constantly stopped and started by meddlers as well who played to the whims of the king by presenting the Judeans as, re as rebels. Are we relying on the promises of kings or on the king of kings? You know, one of the things you see within Ezra and Nehemiah is a weariness to rely on the king's resources. Again, maybe they were aware of how fickle they were, but at the same time, they really needed God to build, to build Jerusalem again. In our rendering to Caesar what is due to him, are we then neglecting to render to the Lord what is his? You know, we give to the kings what they deserve, right? They're, all, they're obedience and whatnot. Our, our citizenship requires us that we be good citizens, right? But ultimately, are we, by doing so, are we neglecting our duty towards God? <coughs> what is so amazing about this period of rebuilding Jerusalem is the promises the promise that comes from the prophet Haggai at a time when all the returnees could see was the inferiority of this second temple in comparison to Solomon's temple, the Lord declares this. And so what happens, especially the older men in the, in the book of Haggai, when they see the temple is completed, they see the temple and it's nothing like the glorious Solomon temple. And they cry because in a sense it's an inferior work. And he gives them this promise in Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what's a comfort here as I kind of look this and, and, and try to center this around the gospel and Jesus is that what makes that second temple eventually, as Herod's temple is there, is that the glory doesn't come like a big cloud as it did in Solomon's day. It came in the presence of the Son of God. 
the glory was filled, that glory, some 400 years later, the glory of the Lord does actually descend into that temple and he comes in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. That's superior to the glory that fell in Solomon's temple. And in Solomon's temple, people couldn't even pick themselves up because of the glory. Yet, in Jesus, Jesus had to come into that temple and had to whip people into shape and say, my house shall be a house of prayer. In many ways, the project of Nehemiah and Ezra failed. The people were not obedient. But the promise was nonetheless fulfilled. The glory of the second temple will be greater because God himself will come down in the presence of his son. What a great thing that in as much as a greater figure as Nehemiah is, you know, what a comfort that we have a greater supporter than Nehemiah who sees our distress and the shame and comes with the love of the Father to rebuild our fallen world. So we thankful that a greater than Nehemiah is here in the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. What a glorious vision, what a glorious thing. Even though we might look like nothing, yet we will be filled with the Spirit of God. The glory of the second temple, the second house, which God himself has built up through his son, whom he is the chief cornerstone, will actually surpass that. So no matter how humble you look, greater is you, he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to encourage us with that today as we pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.